You're listening to the Golden Edge Podcast, sponsored by Station Casinos, STN Sports, and presented by the Las Vegas Review-Journal and Blue Wire. Here's your host, Ben Goetz. Every time, every time you uh, lose a job, um, you know, you have different reactions. The Vegas one rattled me because I, I really thought... Uh, as a coaching staff, we, we worked as hard as we could with the situation that uh, was handed to us this year. I thought getting 94 points out of a team that had lost 500 plus man games and, and injuries, uh, you know, I thought our, our coaching staff really worked hard to get that. Uh, you know, put it in perspective, the other team that, that lost that many man games finished dead last. So, um, you know, that. I'm not going to lie to you that it rattled me a little bit that uh, that uh, we were relieved of our duties. What is up, hockey fans? This is the Golden Edge Podcast, the podcast where the Las Vegas Review Journal talks about hockey. I am Ben Goats, your Golden Knights beat writer at the Las Vegas Review Journal. We have so much uh, to get into on today's show. We're going to talk about a bit of breaking news that happened yesterday. We're going to dive into you know, a little bit about how Bruce Cassidy might affect the Golden Knights. We're going to talk which players might go up, which players might go down in terms of role, responsibility, and fit under a new coaching staff. And as you heard off the top, we got to talk about Pete DeBoer's new gig. He is back in the NHL already, uh, about, you know, a month plus after being fired by the Golden Knights. So we're going to dive into all of that on today's show. But before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone that the Golden Edge podcast is sponsored by Station Casinos, STN Sports. Uh, We are, of course, presented by the Las Vegas Review Journal. Check out all our written work at ReviewJournal.com. This past Sunday, I did a really long story on Bruce Cassidy, kind of detailing his path, kind of up the ranks, getting uh, to the NHL first with Washington, then kind of getting fired from that job and having to work his way back up the ranks to Boston to now getting to Las Vegas. I really hope you guys check that out and hopefully it helps you understand a little bit about how Bruce Cassidy got to this point and some of the kind of forks in the road in his career that influenced kind of his decision-making and his kind of overall coaching uh, philosophies. And then I don't want to give away too much, but we should have another really exciting story for you guys uh coming out uh sunday the 26th here that i really hope you check out as well a lot of time went into this by a lot of people uh including myself and i don't want to spoil it too much but i think you're really going to want to pick up a a copy of the review journal on sunday the 26th Uh, also we are presented by blue wire Uh, and of course if you guys could write your review subscribe yeah whatever you did podcast please do to this one we would very much appreciate it uh, all right, well, let's hit the kind of kind of breaking news, somewhat breaking news, maybe breaking news uh, to start today's show. And that is the fact that Frank Cervalli of Daily Faceoff is reporting uh, that the Knights have a kind of quote unquote verbal agreement uh, with Riley Smith on a new contract extension. Uh, Cervalli later said it's expected to be a, you know, around a three year deal with, you know, about a five million dollar annual cap hit Riley Smith's last contract was a five-year deal also with a five million dollar cap hit so if those terms uh do end up coming true I think that would be a pretty fair compromise for both sides where the Knights find a way to get Riley Smith to 
uh, stay around, not at an exorbitant number, but also not, you know, at a necessarily a pay cut where Riley Smith probably isn't maximizing his value on the free agent market in this case, but does get to stay in Las Vegas if this deal ends up happening. One thing about the report and just kind of logically looking at the Knights cap situation, you can kind of game this out uh, is the Knights are you know, going to be pressed up against the cap this offseason. I think we all know that. They have to fit still uh, some restricted free agents under the salary cap's upper limit in terms of Nicholas Waugh, Nick Hague, Brett Howden, Keaton Colasar. So this deal is probably not going to be official right away to give the Knights more wiggle room um, to get those guys done. And it also kind of staves off the threat of a potential offer sheet to any of those restricted free agents um, if the Knights kind of have kept their salary cap powder dry by not making the Riley Smith deal official. Now, offer sheets are extremely rare in the NHL. And in order to for an offer sheet to kind of go into a f- effect, a player has to actually sign it. Um, so the player that uh, another team would be trying to poach from the Golden Knights, like say if someone wanted to try to offer sheet Nicholas Waugh, uh, they can't offer sheet. Uh, Nick Waugh without Nick Waugh's approval. Nick Waugh has to sign a contract with an opposing team um, and then kind of, you know, it gets into the whole dance of whether the Knights match that offer, or whether they let Nick Waugh leave and accept that draft pick compensation. So that's partially why, um, you know, these offer sheets are so rare is that the player has to be talked into actually signing on the dotted line. Um, we'll see whether, you know, any of the nice players can be coerced um, into that. Um, but like I said, a lot of teams don't even bother because teams usually match. And so it's a lot of hassle for nothing. And like I said, in this case, there was a scenario where if the Knights made the Riley Smith uh, deal official right away, if indeed they do have this verbal agreement, that they might be kind of forced into a rock and a hard place if a team decides to offer sheet one of their players, one of their restricted free agents, and gets that player's approval as unlikely as that sounds, uh, this leaves open the door that the Knights aren't going to be kind of put in a difficult position that way. Um, if it indeed happens, and obviously, it, like I said, if it indeed ha- happens, I think it's probably good for both sides where the Knights are getting back a obviously very important piece uh, in their top six, a guy like Riley Smith who can play in all situations, who's been part of a leadership group since day one, is active in the community. He's obviously got that annual charity softball game the battle for las vegas on the book so it'd be very awkward if he ended up leaving as an unrestricted free agent this off season because uh unrestricted free agency starts july 13th and i believe the game is july 18th so obviously i think this makes sense for both sides if it ultimately does end up coming to fruition no one you know on either side would confirm that there is any sort of verbal uh, agreement in place yesterday not that they would be expected to so we'll see you know if and when uh, this becomes official uh, I think the natural question of course is now that this has happened or reportedly has happened what would be next for the Golden Knights um, we talked about last week the fact that the Golden Knights traded Evgeny Dodonov to the Montreal Canadiens they got back the defenseman Shea Weber's contract that's going to stay on long term uh, injured reserve. And so that created about $5 million in effective cap space for the Golden Knights. is not quite worked that way since they're using long-term injured reserve, but it was essentially, you know, another $5 million in spending power. Well, 
if uh, Frank Cervelli is right and Riley Smith is getting paid $5 million annually on this new contract, there goes all of that spending power that the uh, Knights basically created, which means they're basically right up against the salary cap limit once again with those restricted freedoms I already talked about. So that means that in all likelihood, uh, at least one, if not multiple players are still on the way out potentially that are currently under contract on the roster in order to make this work. And it's going to be probably at least one player that has a pretty sizable uh, cap hit because just kind of trading away Laurent Brassois and promoting Logan Thompson, you know, even if the Knights do that, that only saves you about $1.6 million in salary cap space. Maybe that's getting you one of those restrictor free agents back. It's probably not getting you uh, two. Same with, you know, uh, Nolan Patrick. Uh, general manager Caleb McCrimmon said he was out indefinitely at his season ending press conference. So even if it ends up coming to pass that Nolan Patrick doesn't play next season, you're maybe fitting one of those restricted free agents uh, under, you know, that probably not multiple. So it'll be interesting to see what direction the Knights decide to go. There obviously are some veteran guys on contracts that they could potentially look to move, but they've got, you know, a lot of guys under contract that have been very useful players for them. So it's going to be some very difficult decisions for them, either entering the draft, which is July 7th and 8th. And typically we see some trades happen there or heading into the opening of free agency on July 13th. Uh, It's very much a fluid situation. Um, So the Knights, it appears have answered one of their big off season questions, which they are, at least it seems actively working towards bringing back Riley Smith, but because of kind of now what that does to their salary cap picture, it creates a lot more questions that we're going to need answers to uh, this off season. And it might be a while based on the fact that, you know, it's not expected that this Riley Smith contract will get announced anytime soon until we get a full picture of what this off season is ultimately going to look like for the Knights. Um, but I do think ultimately both sides should be pretty happy with this deal, especially the Knights for getting a guy like Riley Smith back. And I think Bruce Cassidy will be very happy to have a guy like Riley Smith uh, on the roster, which can transition into our next topic, uh, which is I wanted to discuss a little bit about kind of, you know, guys that should be very happy about Riley or about Bruce Cassidy coming to town and guys that maybe should be a little bit more wary of what this is going to mean for them uh, and their roles. Uh, I, flub the name right there because I think Riley Smith is a guy that fits a lot of what Bruce Cassidy wants to do in terms of he's obviously got very solid, strong defensive systems and is probably going to want a lot of two-way forwards kind of carry the load for this team, especially at five on five. I think Riley Smith obviously fits right into that mold as being a guy who is extremely effective on the penalty kill, which has been a strength for Bruce Cassidy when he was in Boston. That's going to be an extremely important weapon for him to have on this team. And then I think you can start to discuss other guys as well that should be very happy about Bruce Cassidy coming to town. I think one guy that jumps out to me after looking into it is Robin Leonard. And I think you could say by extension, all of the Golden Knights goaltenders. Uh, Bruce Cassidy has talked about having a quote-unquote goalie-friendly system. You know, I talked about, you know, how strong defensively his teams have been you know on the past uh on past shows his teams were number one in goals allowed in boston over his entire tenure there uh, last year the bruins gave up the fewest scoring chances per 60 minutes and the fewest high danger uh chances per 60 minutes they limit 
uh, opponents getting dangerous looks at the goal. And specifically, I think when you talk about what Cassidy teams do is that they have, you know, create layers to their defense where, you know, players have to weave through multiple kind of bodies to in order to get to the net. They have to go through a forward. They have to go through a defenseman. That's very helpful for a guy like Robin Leonard in terms of having this kind of structure to a defense. I think one thing that was very apparent last year with Robin Leonard and has been clear kind of his entire career is that he is a very technically sound and proficient uh, goaltender, especially when he's able to read plays and know where the puck is potentially going. Robin Leonard is a big body who is very, very smart, reads the ice very well. And when he knows how to play his angles and kind of get in the way of shots, he's a very effective goaltender. We saw him under a very stingy Barry Trotz defense become a Vesna Trophy finalist. Whereas I think sometimes, especially this past year with the Knights, when they're playing more of a frenetic style, he doesn't necessarily thrive in those situations where the Knights, especially when they were shorthanded last year, had to send extra bodies forward, push for offense because they weren't scoring as much. That led to defensive breakdowns the other way, you know, two-on-ones, three-on-twos and stuff like that. And those kind of, you know, looser scenarios, uh, especially in transition, are not where Robin Leonard necessarily thrives. I mean, he obviously likes to say big man can move when he wants to, and I think that's very true. But he's not, you know, necessarily as athletic a goaltender um, as you see in the NHL, whereas Marc-Andre Fleury did kind of thrive in those situations where he could go post to post. Um, and sometimes that athleticism would get Marc-Andre Fleury in trouble where he would get so out of his crease that he would lose the net and then teams would be able to kind of find backdoor goals on him because he was being so aggressive and athletic and trying to make these highlight reel saves. Whereas Robin Leonard, for the most part, um, you know, and this obviously I think didn't happen at times last year too, in part because of the defense in front of him and he felt he needed to, you know, accommodate for that partially just his own play. Um, He's rarely going to be completely caught out of um, position, but when, you know, shots kind of change the angle on him or he has to, you know, move and cover a great distance in the crease in order to cut down an angle or stop a shot. He's not going to look um, as strong. Um, so I think Robin Leonard has certain strengths and certain weaknesses, just like all goaltenders do, all players do. I think Bruce Cassidy's system, which should help him give him, you know, defined reads and help kind of give him a structure that he can follow, will help him more than it would some goaltenders and would help him a lot more than what he was kind of dealing with last year, which was because the Golden Knights were so shorthanded and were pushing up ice more than they typically did. I think that was, you know, a situation that kind of compounded itself for Robin Leonard, where uh, not only the fact uh, that the Knights kind of gave up more odd man rushes is obviously bad for any goaltender, but that's specifically a situation where Robin Leonard does not thrive in. And I think, you know, if his shoulder gets healthy and he, is healthy to begin the year. I think he has a chance to have a very good season in this system with Bruce Cassidy. And obviously I think you can make that argument for, you know, any goaltender is going to play better in a more defensively oriented system. So it'll be interesting to see how Logan Thompson fares. And if the Knights decide to hang on to Laurent Brassois in any way, shape or form, how he does as well after getting hip surgery uh, this off season. Another guy that I think could really, you know, get some success from this change, and I'm curious to see how it uh, looks, and this guy is actually very similar to Riley Smith, is, of course, his typical linemate, William Carlson. I think any system 
that prioritizes defensive responsibility and two-way kind of players are going to play to William Carlson's strengths. But obviously, this is a system that just thrived under probably the one of the best two-way forwards of all time in Patrice Bergeron, just an incredible uh, two-way center up the middle, won the Selkie Trophy for a record number of times this year. He was number one uh, on my ballot, and I can say that now, you know, that the NHL awards have been out, and you can look at uh, the voting totals, including what I voted for on the uh, Pro Hockey Writers Association website. So I think this has the chance to be a very good change for William Carlson, and maybe it's a chance for him to get some of the confidence back that he was lacking last year and even admitted he was lacking in his postseason media availability. I think he is a kind of player that Bruce Cassidy is going to like, that Bruce Cassidy is going to trust, and maybe having a new voice in William Carlson's ear, especially a guy that's been as successful as Bruce Cassidy has been over the last couple of years, um, gives him a little bit of a boost. Uh, we'll have to see what happens whether William Carlson's finishing comes back a little bit after he just did not have a good year putting the puck uh, in the net. I don't think it's ever going to get back to those 2017, 2018 levels that Golden Knights first season, just because no one is as effective finishing as William Carlson was that season. That's just an unrealistic expectation. He is not going to ever likely shoot 23%, you know, again, that just doesn't happen. But can he shoot higher than 8.9% like he did last year? Absolutely. He should have a higher baseline than that. And I think a lot of it does come down to uh, his confidence and maybe a new coach and a new coach that I think is going to like him and trust him, you know, helps give him that boost. Locals know the STN Sports app is the most trusted sports betting app in Nevada. They have convenient sign-up locations across Las Vegas. So download the STN Sports app today. Uh, now to go to the other side of the coin of guys that, you know, I'm curious what this change is ultimately going to mean for them. I think one guy that's going to be interesting to watch in this system is Max Pacioretty. Obviously, Pacioretty incredible goal scorer and Bruce Cassidy has worked with guys like Patrick before guys whose primary job is scoring goals. David Pasternak uh, has done okay in Boston. I don't know if you've uh, you know seen how he works uh, in Bruce Cassidy's system, but it's, it's been going pretty well. So uh, obviously Bruce Cassidy can work with goal scorers, but I think Bruce Cassidy in his opening press conference and some of the remarks he's made since then has been all about you know, we're not leap flying the zone early. We're leaving together with possession and we're going to go kind of zone to zone together as a five-man unit. Uh, that always isn't how Pacioretty likes to operate. If anyone uh, watches, you know, Pacioretty closely on some of his shifts, he does like to drift out of the zone early quite a bit, get going in transition a little bit ahead of the play. Now, Pete DeBoer, who was also a defensive kind of, oriented coach was fine with that and I think actually Pete DeBoer did get more out of Max Pacioretty than a lot of coaches have and I think Pacioretty had a lot of respect for Pete DeBoer because of that Pacioretty talked at his season ending media availability about how he thought Pete had added a lot of layers to his game in their kind of two and a half seasons working together uh, now I'm going to be interested to see if that kind of progression continues under Bruce Cassidy who I think might you know, hold the reins potentially even tighter on Pacioretty. We'll see if that's the case. We'll see if Pacioretty kind of 
because he's a veteran and because he's obviously so good at what he does when he is on the ice in terms of scoring goals with that wicked wrist shot of his, whether kind of Cassidy continues to give him that rope to leave the zone early if he sees fit or whether, you know, he really harps on him to stay connected with the rest of the group and stay in the zone, you know, while the puck is still in there. Uh, I'm interested to see how that kind of push pull works in their first fall season together. Who knows? It might end up working out great and be a non-issue the entire season. I'm just curious to see how that dynamic goes. Uh, The other guy that I think, you know, is going to potentially be, I guess, slowed by this change. I'm curious to see how this is going to go um, is Brendan Brisson. So we talked about, you know, a couple episodes ago, I kind of went through the night system and talked about some guys that might be ready to make an impact at some point this year. And I thought Brisson would certainly start the year in Henderson, but maybe get a chance with the NHL club at some point during the year. Um, and that still very well might be the case uh, for those that need a quick refresher. Brendan Brisson, the Knights 2020 uh, first round pick, 29th overall, uh, just wrapped up his sophomore season at Michigan, where he was very good, produced extremely well, made it to the Frozen Four, then was basically a little bit more than a point per game guy in a brief audition in Henderson. Um, scouting report, incredible one timer, uh, loves playing on his off wing. You know, he's a left shot, but loves to play on the right wing because his one-timer is so, so good. Um, and then kind of everything else in his game is a little bit of a work in progress. He's not the, you know, best gator. He's got some creativity. He can play make uh, a little bit, but he's still working to round out a lot of the areas of his game in terms of improving his skating, improving his defensive responsibility, his play in his own zone, uh, stuff like that. And we know... You know, under Bruce Cassidy, he talked about it at his opening press conference. He talked about the story I wrote uh, for last Sunday's paper on kind of his coaching philosophy. I mean, he really demands attention to detail, even from young guys. He doesn't kind of give them a grace period to kind of ease their way into the NHL and the NHL style of play. Bruce Cassidy's kind of, you know, philosophy is, and you could understand uh, why once you learn a little bit more about uh, his story in the piece I wrote is, I don't have time to waste with these young guys. There's always kind of another prospect coming up. There's always another draft where more guys are being, you know, entered into the prospect pool. They need to realize what it takes to be in the NHL right away. And so for him, that's obviously a lot of being in the right spots, competing hard defensively, getting on the back check um, and being available on breakouts and stuff like that stuff that for younger players, particularly younger offensively gifted players uh, forwards who are kind of used to, you know, seeing their value be in their points and goals and stuff that can take them a little bit, a little bit longer to get a grasp of. And so that I think means that a guy like Brisson who has to work to round out his game, you know, it might take him a little bit longer than even, you know, people expected coming into the year to fit into this system and be, ready to the point that Bruce Cassidy is going to trust, you know, giving him a role on this team. Uh, That was definitely a thing at Boston, a thing that was kind of, you know, there was grumblings on Bruce Cassidy's way out of Boston that he was too hard on young players. He didn't give them enough of a rope and that he kind of made them too afraid to make mistakes. And so I think it's a little bit longer development curve for some of these young guys than they maybe would have under a different kind of coach who, would be willing to give younger players more rope and kind of see what they do with it. And then if the younger players uh, don't succeed, then the coach pulls the rope back. And if the young player kind of figures it out on their own, the coach just kind of lets them go. 
Uh, I think Cassie is definitely a guy that holds the rope a little bit tighter. So specifically for a guy like Brandon Brisson, who is uh, has some very good offensive gifts, specifically that shot, but is still working to be you know completely stout defensively. It might take him a little bit longer to work into Bruce Cassidy's good graces. You know that is a normal progression, especially for a lot of these young guys when they are asked to fill a role on a very good team. Uh, Cody Glass, uh, we actually had him this had him on uh, the podcast last season, kind of in the middle of the year, where he talked about he was a guy in junior hockey and even with like hockey Canada growing up where he was so used to getting points every game. And that's how we measured his value where, you know, being a third line center on a contending team where he was asked to, you know, be good defensively and just make plays when they're available was a pretty tough transition for him. And so I think that's something that could happen, you know, to Brisson this year too, where he's obviously an incredibly good offensive threat, especially on the power play. But if he's kind of asked to, you're just supposed to kind of break even five on five and then try to make your mark on the power play. How much of an adjustment will that be? How much will he, you know, kind of adjust to kind of maybe harder, especially defensive coaching from Cassidy? Who knows? Maybe he'll figure it out uh, faster than expected. But it certainly does seem like, you know, for anyone hoping that Brandon Brisson would make an instant impact, maybe even right, right out of training camp next year, I think Bruce Cassidy being coached means you have to adjust your expectations a little bit and expect that it might take him a little bit longer than it would if they had went with somebody else on the last guy I want to talk to in terms of how Bruce Cassidy uh, could affect you know his potential uh, I don't want to say role but just kind of how he fits into the picture next season and I don't mean this as a positive or negative thing I just mean this in terms of this is something I'm just very interested to see how this happens is Jack Eichel and obviously Eichel, incredibly talented guy, um, but Cassidy spoke of him at his introductory press conference and said, you know, quote, he is a guy that's a high-end hockey player that's still learning how to win and play the right way, so to speak, end quote. And I find that very fascinating because Eichel has obviously not been known throughout his career as a two-way player. I think there is defensive potential there. I think especially kind of towards the end of his line in Buffalo, he showed that he can be an impact player. Uh, defensively, but you know, so often, especially for that Sabres team that was devoid of talent, uh, that's not what they needed from him. They needed him to drive offense because they didn't have a whole lot of other guys that could do that. So obviously on this team, I think Eichel does not have to be the only guy carrying the offensive load. So is he a guy that is going to, you know, succeed trying to play a more two-way game with Bruce Cassidy? Is he not necessarily going to be kind of let off the leash to be, you know, a point per game guy, which he has been at times in his career. He's got 380 points in 409 career NHL games, so very close to a point per game um, kind of player. Um, and so it'll be fast because I, Eichel has all the potential in the world. I think people know this. He was the number two overall pick in the draft in 2015 for a reason. But I'm curious whether, you know, he's going to kind of be unlocked under Cassidy and kind of become this, you know, well-rounded all around sort of dynamic center who can drive offense while still taking care of his own end defensively. Like Austin Matthews, I think this past season really did. And that won Austin Matthews, the heart trophy, or is it going to be tough for Eichel to kind of relinquish some of those offensive instincts that he has and those kind of, you know, instincts to 
drive play, to play make for others, to set up guys. Um, I think that'll be really, really interesting. I think both sides kind of, from what I understand, want to make it work. I think both sides have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Eichel is obviously kind of a Boston area guy. So I think he very much knows the job that Cassidy did with the Bruins. And I think it'll be cool and interesting to see how these two guys mesh together. Obviously Eichel is just a very rough calendar year for him over the past year where he was feuding with the Sabres, finally got traded to the Knights this fall, had his neck surgery, had to come back in the middle of the year with a new team. They didn't get a lot of practice time with under a coach that he'd never played for before. And now he does kind of get this fresh start entering next year where he has, you know, pretty much a fully healthy off season. He's going to be able to have a full training camp with a new coach to get to know his new teammates and kind of how they want to play and stuff away from kind of more of a high pressurized environment where even when Eichel came back, it was so much about like, okay, the Knights got to get in the playoffs. They got to win these games. You know, there's not as much focus on meshing with each other and kind of development and things like that, where they'll obviously have a much longer runway entering next season. And the Cassidy Eichel dynamic, I think is going to be something that's a clear storyline to watch uh, in training camp heading into the season. And I think how those two guys and how their styles fit uh, could ultimately have a big determination on the kind of season the Knights will have. Uh, So those are kind of the players that I'm kind of watching, you know, fit under Bruce Cassidy. Obviously there's a lot of other guys that I could have mentioned, but those guys in particular stood out to me. Um, I think it'll be really interesting. Uh, I think I've said that a lot obviously already, but you know, whenever a new coaching staff comes in and they kind of have fresh eyes on all of these players, you kind of wonder what they think of them. And so it's definitely going to be, I think kind of a feeling out process in training camp for both the players and Bruce Cassidy to get used to each other. Um, And speaking of coaches, uh, let's wrap up with our final topic of the day. And that is the fact that Pete DeBoer is back in the NHL. He is coaching the Dallas Stars. Uh, he is actually taking over a team that gave uh, him a lot of trouble in his time here uh, in Las Vegas with the Knights. Uh, the Stars, of course, beat the Knights in the 2020 Western Conference Final in the bubble. And then I'm sure everyone remembers that the Stars also beat the Knights late this past season. It was the uh, third to last game of the regular season for the Knights. And that basically put their playoff hopes on life support. It didn't affect officially um, eliminate the Knights. They were eliminated the uh, next night because the Stars uh, made it to overtime, got a point against the Arizona Coyotes, slash uh, the Knights lost in a shootout to the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, the Stars actually only needed one point from their pi- final two games to clinch or have the Knights drop uh, one point. So, you know, both the Stars getting to overtime against the Coyotes and uh, the Knights going to losing that shootout to the Blackhawks kind of did the trick. I think they happened actually almost exactly at the same time, but just one of them happening would have been enough. So the Knights were kind of up against it after losing that game to the Stars. So, you know, Pete DeBoer is now joining, like I said, that team that was a thorn uh, on his side. And so it was interesting to hear him, you know, reflect back because obviously he was asked about his time with the Knights and that ending, even though he had an overall pretty successful uh, run here back-to-back trips to the semifinals obviously missed the playoffs uh, this year but had a very strong points percentage overall at 650 um, but here's Pete DeBoer talking about what he would change about his Knights tenure. 
not to have 500 man games lost <laughs> to injury last year, you know, that bled into everything we wanted to do. Um, I took the job in Vegas, uh, thought I made an impact. Uh, we went to the conference final in the bubble, went to the conference final, beat Colorado, the president's trophy winning uh, team uh, last year. Um, you know, and, and I thought we're building on that, you know, we're just trying to reach our potential and then, then had a, as disastrous a, an injury filled year as I've experienced as a coach that bled into everything we were trying to do. So, you know, one, and it's not something a coach can control, but his health. Um, two, I think every year in this league, you, you learn more, you know, you, you know, I, I've grown as a coach. Uh, I understand now the importance of, of, of getting relationships with players quickly, making sure your leadership group is involved in, in all the important decisions with your team. Um, you know, there's always things you can do better. As, as I'm watching playoff hockey, you know, there's things you can incorporate watching the two best teams in the league play right now, Colorado and Tampa. I got a chance to, to be on the coaching staff of the Canadian Olympic team. We didn't get a chance to go uh, to the Olympics, but I got a chance to spend a week in uh, Calgary with Barry Trotz and John Cooper. Uh, you know, those experiences make you a better coach. So, uh, you know, we're always learning and evolving. So no surprise that Pete DeBoer kind of went to injuries there. Obviously, I tweeted out actually that quote and I got a lot of fans in my mentions. I think providing some fair kind of counter arguments, some not so much. Uh, obviously, I think there was clearly things that Pete DeBoer could have done better in his time with the Golden Knights besides just have healthy players this past year. Uh, the special teams, especially this season, were not good enough. They were not good enough to finish uh, the playoffs last year, especially against the Montreal uh, Canadiens. There are certainly some things that Pete DeBoer could have done better in his tenure. Do I think he's right to kind of be like, I don't think, you know, myself and the coaching staff should have been the fall guys for this past year that like there was, you know, something that we did was the main reason why uh, we were out of the playoffs and thus out of a job this year. Yeah, I think there's probably some elements to that, but there are definitely... I think some things that Pete DeBoer, when he ultimately self-reflects, could have done better here, even though I think overall he did a good job. Um, it, I will say it does seem like I think Dallas is a pretty good fit for him. There are veterans there, like uh, former Sa- Pete DeBoer's former San Jose captain, Joe Pavelski, uh, their current captain in Dallas, Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan. I think Pete will be able to get buy-in from because of the success he's had at multiple stops, both with the Knights and then in San Jose and New Jersey. Before that, uh, there's also a lot of young talent in Dallas from the mold and uh, center Rope Hintz, left wing Jason Robertson, defensive Miro Heiskanen, um, as well as a uh, goaltender Jake Ottinger, plus a pretty good forward pipeline that kind of projects well for the future uh, as well. Um, I think Pete showed the majority of his time here. He's not necessarily kind of that veteran coach that struggles to integrate Young players um, kind of been talking about that quite a bit with Bruce Cassidy here. Barry Trotz kind of carries around that rep, too, that he can be hard on younger players. I don't think that's necessarily the case with DeBoer during his time here. You saw guys like Nicholas Waugh, Keegan Colasar get established on the blue line. Uh, Zach Whitecloud certainly uh, basically was not you know, an NHL regular until DeBoer got hired. And then I think it was pretty soon into DeBoer's tenure. White Cloud got promoted and then stuck. And then obviously, I think Nick Hague took a lot of strides under DeBoer as well. So he's worked in plenty of young players 
in the past. So I think that bodes well for kind of this forward pipeline that the Stars have. Uh, Cody Glass might be one prominent example of a guy who didn't stick, but Glass spent most of last season in the American Hockey League. And then I actually saw today he just signed a two-way contract, uh, which is a contract that can, you know, pays you differently depending on what, whether you are in the NHL or AHL. So it's not a contract that says you're for sure in the NHL next year. Um, so Cody Glass signed one of those today. So it might not all have been on Pete DeBoer in terms of where Cody Glass's career ultimately turns out. Um, there is a couple questions about DeBoer and Dallas that I think are fair to ask. One is just what is the upside of that roster? The Stars kind of squeaked into the playoffs as I think they ultimately were um, the first wild card in the Western Conference over the Nashville Predators, who were the second wild card. But still, it took uh, the Stars, as we just kind of talked about with their battle with the Knights, until the second to last game of the regular season to clinch their playoff spot. So I think there are still a lot of questions, even though Dallas made that nice run in the bubble to the Stanley Cup final, of is this a team that has enough depth and kind of high-end talent to make you know consistent, deep runs in the playoffs, they made it to a game seven in the first round this year against Calgary. Uh, but that was in part because, yeah, their goaltender, Jake Ottinger, had just a ridiculous series. I believe he had about a 950 save percentage. Uh, that's not something you can necessarily uh, bank on every time you enter the postseason. So what is the upside of this squad? Kind of ultimately, I think, is a fair question to have. I also think, you know, I think Knights fans will definitely uh, point out and ask, is Jake Ottinger a young goaltender like that who's shown a lot of potential? Uh, is he going to be a good fit with Pete DeBoer, who I think uh, his handling of goaltenders was under a lot of scrutiny here in terms of uh, obviously how he handled Marc-Andre Fleury and Robin Leonard, starting Robin Leonard in the bubble. And then obviously kind of how he just navigated goalies both then the subsequent season, Marc-Andre Fleury's Vesna season, where he went back and forth a couple times uh, in the playoffs. And then this year, especially at the end where there was the whole saga of, you know, starting Robin Leonard, even though Robin Leonard was clearly injured, then Pete saying publicly that he thought Leonard was, quote, healthy and fresh. He went back on that in his postseason media availability and just kind of that entire dynamic was very wonky at the end of this season and left a lot of people with questions that we still ultimately have because Robin Leonard has not spoken about how he was handled at the end of the year before he had his shoulder surgery that is he is still recovering from. So that, I think, is a very fair question. Um, but Pete DeBoer was actually asked about how he handled the goaltenders here in Vegas. And so I think that's an interesting answer that fans will want to have. So here is Pete DeBoer reflecting on how he handled the goaltenders with the Knights. You know, in Vegas, the goalie situation, yeah, I mean, obviously as a coach, you know what, for me, uh, looking back now, those guys played their asses off uh, for me. Uh, you know, the first year in the bubble, we went to the conference final, I thought got excellent goaltending. Uh, we had two starting goalies, we had to pick one. You know, the one thing uh, I can tell you uh, in Dallas here is that I'm gonna make the decision that's best that I think will win us a game that night. You know, I'm not going to maybe make the popular decision, but the only motivation, the only agenda is going to be who can help us win. And we made a tough decision going into the bubble. I had just taken the job a couple months earlier and, and I thought Robin Leonard 
uh, was playing at a higher level. They were both elite starting goaltenders. We made a tough decision. And, you know, looking back, I think it was the right decision. Robin took us to the conference final, and, and we got great goaltending from both guys. The next year, Flower was better. We played him. Flower won the Vesna, the only Vesna he's won. Uh, our goalies won the Vesna and Jennings that year. Got excellent goaltending. I think last year, uh, you know, I think our goaltending was a product of our team play, and our team play was a product of the injuries that bled into how our team played. I, I think everybody individually and our team, uh, you know, the, the injuries bled into to everything everyone was trying to do. Uh, so a lot to digest there, a lot to chew on. Fans can obviously have their own opinions on uh, what they thought of Pete DeBoer's handling of the goaltenders here, but that's at least his perspective on it. Uh, the last question I have for how uh, DeBoer is going to work there in Dallas is just kind of what the blue line is going to look like. I think Merrill Heiskanen is a very obviously good, promising young player, uh, but their other main puck mover on the back end, John Klingberg, is a UFA, so I think that's a major hole they have to address obviously i think pete succeeded here in part because he had more than one good puck mover on the blue line it wasn't just shea theodore he was either he also had nate schmidt and then obviously moving forward then he had alex petrangelo i think they're going to need a second guy there for pete's system to kind of truly thrive in dallas i ultimately like i said i do think it's a good fit i think it's the best spot DeBoer could have landed in my opinion of the job's we're available. I expect the Stars to have success with him, make the playoffs more times than not. I'm just not sure how many deep runs are going to come out of this collection of players. But who knows? Maybe they will ultimately prove me wrong. The Stars obviously have proved a lot of people wrong before, especially when they made that deep run in the bubble. Uh, but that's going to go do it for this edition of the Golden Edge podcast. As a reminder, we are sponsored by Station Casinos STN Sports. Uh, we are presented by the Las Vegas Review Journal. As I said, check out all our written work at reviewjournal.com. Uh, once again, had a very uh, long piece on Bruce Cassidy and his coaching path uh, this past Sunday. We've got another very exciting story coming out this Sunday, the 26th, that I really hope you guys take some time to check out. There will be photos, there will be videos, there will be a lot of elements to go into it. So it's definitely a you know pour a pot of coffee and kind of sit down to read this one kind of story. And I really hope you guys enjoy it uh we are also presented by blue wire and if you could rate review subscribe whatever you podcast please do to this one we would very much appreciate it uh, i'm ben goats this is the golden edge podcast we'll talk to you guys again real soon Locals know the STN Sports app is the most trusted sports betting app in Nevada. They have convenient sign-up locations across Las Vegas. So download the STN Sports app today.